Our typical class on Thursday this year has been studying the thought of Rabbi Salavechik, that is Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, Rabbi Joseph Ver Salavechik, who was the uh, Rosh Hashiva in YU, uh, chief rabbi of Boston. However, this morning I woke up with all intention of giving our final class of the year. I'm going to take off for a few weeks to prepare for Yom Tov and just to take a break. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to. Maybe I'll do that. We'll see what comes out. The um, so I was all intended on giving a final class on Rabbi Salvechik and something. I even had it prepared. It's going to be a combination of his approach to repentance, tshuva, as well as a kind of a summary of some of the major ideas we saw this year from the thought of Rabbi Salvechik. However, I got a text on my phone. I'm going to read you the text. Text came from Grandpa. 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 Okay. And Grandpa asked as follows. Now, I'm recording this, so Grandpa is probably going to listen, so I have to be very careful what I say. <laughs> he says, What is the Jewish view on the death verdict in the Pittsburgh Tree of Life decision? Does the Torah mention any guidance? So, what do I do as a good grandson? I ignored it! <laughs> Which, by the way, I once got a text that said, Hi, some people call me David, some people call me Dave, some people call me Grandpa, and some people don't call. So, that was at 7.16 a.m. At 10.15 a.m., I sat down to prepare, and I'm like, you know what? Why don't we talk today about this uh, death penalty, and the the general capital punishment in Judaism, Um, and therefore I can avoid having to actually send a text to Grandpa, I can just give a lecture on it. That being the case... The source sheets, I had thought in my notes I had source sheets from a previous, just when I went through the topic myself. I did not. So I apologize. The source sheets are all in Hebrew, but we'll read through them as always. Also, part of the source sheets you'll see are the minutes from the Knesset debate in the 1950s. Those, of course, were never written in English and are not translated into English. But um, that's number one. Number two is this is obviously a very large topic, a topic that's fraught with a lot of political connotations and debate, which we're going to assiduously avoid. What I want to do is just give a survey of some of the major uh, factors, some of the major variables, things that are taken into consideration as we try to orient ourselves towards some sort of approach to capital punishment. Because as we know, it's a major debate. It has been a major debate in American life, really since I think 1972 or so. There was a famous case in Georgia when the Supreme Court ruled it to be unconstitutional based off the Eighth Amendment, that it was cruel and unusual punishment, which is an interesting uh, place to put it. It happens to be that was, a, that was what was unique about that court case, not only that it was overturned four years later, let just close the door, that there were four in the dissent that said it should be legal, five who uh, said it should be illegal, unconstitutional. Everyone, meaning all nine justices, had a different reason. And some of them were mutually, mutually exclusive of one another. That being said, I want to avoid the political part because as my general approach is, we don't do politics. This is about Torah and we talk about issues. And if you want to apply it to your own political lives, you can do so. Okay. So again, it's a survey. There are going to be no conclusions here. We good? Yes. Can you elaborate on the Tree of Life case more so than the verdict? The Tree of Life case, for those who are not familiar... I mean, I th- we probably all, it was about it was 2018, 2019, 2009, it was in 2019, two years ago, so 2020 to 21, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a man who we will not name, I never liked it when they named the, these mass shooters, I think it just gives them more credit than they deserve, 
and encouraged others. Walked into the Tree of Life Synagogue, which was a synagogue in Pittsburgh. It was actually, I think it was three or four synagogues in one building. And he started shooting and effectively he killed, I think, 11 people, as well as wounding many others. The oldest, the oldest person killed was a 97-year-old, um, and it was a t- terrible, horrific massacre. His motivation was um, he was an anti-Semite, he was, tar- he was targeting Jews, although he probably pleaded insanity. I'm sure he pleaded insanity. They all, they all plead insanity, but I think you have to be insane to shoot anyone, so I don't know how much, how much it holds water always. Okay. That was the case of Tree of Life. Yesterday, the jury unanimously, in, uh, in America, it has to be by unanimous decision, the jury uh, gave him the death penalty, which I believe at some point today, it's going to actually be handed down by the judge, as in the judge will then rule and give him the death penalty. I don't know, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know, the lawyer's room can tell me if a judge can overrule a jury, I don't know how that works, but be it as it may, that's the case from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that's why we're talking about this today. This was on Shabbos morning. It was on a Shabbos morning, correct. It sounded like, at least what I heard, was that the judge kind of overruled. Just kind of overruled. His discretion was that. Got it. Okay, fine. So, Elliot says the judge can overrule. Whatever it is, the point is that this person will, you know, if he doesn't get it, I'll tell you there was someone else yesterday who uh, I believe did get the death penalty. There's a little bit about that. Okay, fine. So now, all right, good. Just, that was a couple initial thoughts. Part of the reason why, and actually it's more preliminary thoughts just because it's on my mind. Part of the reason why it is such a big debate, um, for those who are around the famous Dukakis debacle, I believe it was in the debate in 88 when he was running for president, he was asked the question if someone were to rape and murder his wife and daughter, what would he, uh, would he apply the death penalty? And he kind of was like, ah, and he kind of wavered on it. And they say that it cost him a lot of votes. So since then, there's kind of been, again, it's a political decision more than a moral decision. Oftentimes in politics, that's what it is. And we're at a place now where there's kind of like, some are, some are opposed, some are against, but in, on the books, I think 29 states in America allow for it. Most of them have to be, happen to be in the South. Most of the uh, death uh, penalties that are actually carried out. Normally, when there's a death sentence that's given, it takes about 10 to 15 years before it happens because of all the appeals. It, I think it's Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. So if anyone here is planning to murder anyone, choose your state wisely. Not in the only cloud. What do you say? Not, yeah, exactly. Not in the only cloud. There was somebody just Correct. 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 The um, but again, a part of what the what's going into the political decision again. There's, obviously, there's a moral decision here, which we're going to discuss a little bit. But part of it also is not even political. Part of the social is that there is a debate about is it disproportionately affecting minorities? How much does that play into the greater the greater discussion about minorities in general being disproportionately affected versus crime coming out of poor communities? Um, there is a wonderful and very difficult book to read by. Um, by called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, who who started the a project called now I'm blanking on the name, the Innocent not the Innocent Project that's from, uh, New York. Brian Stevenson started. Someone can Google it. Started. So who's going to Google it? Want to Google Brian Stevenson? He started an organization that was effectively trying to um, look for people who start with someone who's on death row, and he 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 took on this case and exonerated them. Effective at, at the end of many many years. He's not, he's not running the Innocence Project. He's running a different project. I forgot what it's called. But his argument is, you know, what, the, just, the justice. What is it called? Um, the equal, equal Justice Initiative. So his case started, there was a, a man in Georgia, uh, Georgia, I believe as well, falsely accused of murder, 
put on death row, and he took the case on when the person was on death row for, I don't know, it was like 15 or 16 years, and he systematically dismantled the entire case to show that, you know, everything at play from racism to total incompetence. How much of that is always at play? It's unclear. It's really unclear. There's, there's debates on both sides. There's an economist in Brown, Glenn Leary, who's written a lot about this. Brian Stevenson's written a lot about this. What I think is definitely, we know for sure, is some, if you're poor and you can't afford a, a lawyer, so then you are more likely to lose your case. And again, these are all considerations that go beyond the halachic and moral considerations just in terms of the way our society is and the biases and racism and everything else that's at play. Not what I want to address today. What I want to address today is the Torah's perspective. Anyone here familiar with any, anything? All right, Elliot's pointing out, throughout the Torah replete, we have various uh, sins. Some are social sins, if you want to call them that, murder. Some are religious sins, which probably make us more uncomfortable. Ritual sins, where the Torah was, will, does say, if you transgress this or the other, you shall be put to death. And the Torah then gives us four different w- methods of killing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we'll get to that. We'll get to the, the, the parameters. I just want to just throw it out there. The Torah definitely has a concept of a death penalty. Again, as you just mentioned, we'll talk about what exactly is. Give me a second, Inbar. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about how to get there. But certainly, and again, I think what definitely will probably, make, I assume, will make people more uncomfortable is the ritual punishment. Someone who violates various precepts over someone who murders someone or rapes someone or does some sort of heinous crime. That being said... Anyone here familiar with the there's a Mishnah? The Mishnah is a rabbinic source in Makos that says that any Bezdin that kills once in a Shvua, a Shvua is Sheva, seven, once in seven years is called a uh, killing Bezdin. And anyone who kills, and Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah comes along and says once in seven years, if a Bezdin is able to kill once in 70 years, as in uh, someone gets the capital punishment once in 70 years, is you know they they they, they say they're they're a killing bezdin, and Rav Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva come along. It's the famous Rabbi Akiva who said who said you know love your neighbor. He says lo nerek adami olam. He goes had we been on the rabbinical court, we never would have killed anyone. Okay, at which point they seem to be saying that I I don't think they're saying because we don't think people would have been liable. I think what they're saying is that because and we'll see in a minute. It's so complex to get someone to the point of death. Why that is, again, we'll see as well. It's just, it would, it's, impro- it's improbable and almost in, near impossible to happen. And therefore, they said, we, don't, we would find a way and we find a way out. No one would ever get killed. Which sounds like a really nice statement until Rishimingam Lil points out and says, Rabbi Kiva, you want to be this, uh, this, this, uh, this nice guy. You don't want anyone to ever get the death penalty. You know what you're going to do? You're going to increase the murderers who are running around the Jewish people. As if to say that I think so often we may fall prey to in our in our mercy and care for everyone. Sometimes we overemphasize the plight of the perpetrator in a way we almost turn them into the victim, forgetting that there are other victims and there are not only are there were there vict- past victims, but sometimes there are future victims. And some people are just unfortunately say are bad, and we have to find a way to remove them from society. Yeah. It's not like, um, well, I'm recommending it or perhaps you should, if it's a chiyah, 
100, so Ellie, you're pointing out something very interesting. The Torah's language isn't one sh- one could, it's one should. In fact, we're going to see in a minute, it's actually a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. What does that mean? So I want to get there. Well, I want to take what? We'll get there in a minute. What we have, though, is I think the first Gemara, the first rabbinic source is already a debate. One is we're kind of mitigating how often this is going to happen. Once in seven years, once in 70 years, it has to be a particular heinous crime done in such a way which we'll see that you can get someone. Akiva's like, I don't think I'll ever do it. And Rishim Gamliel's like, as the Mishnah in Pirkei says, we learn ethics of the fathers, that anyone who has mercy, on, on the, has misplaced mercy, ultimately misplaced mercy ends up leading to cruelty. And you can see that all the time. Imagine if a judge said to someone, look, I know you you have tendencies to kill and you murdered a whole family, but I feel bad for you because your grandmother must have once hit you and, you're, and you, you, you're, your schooling was bad and you grew up in poverty. So you can go free. Just say, I'm sorry. What's going to happen? That misplaced mercy ends up leading to cruelty. So again, part of the complexity, which, why I think, which I think, by the way, that's what undermines all of this. We'll see in a minute or soon. Part of the complexity of all this is we're, not just we're dealing with human life and therefore the, there is the, the there is the tension of to ensure a, a if someone is liable, make sure there's someone liable. We don't we don't want to put someone to death and condemn someone to death, to condemn someone to death, only to find out, uh oh, I made a mistake. I mean, you can say I'm sorry, but you can't bring the person back. Part of the tension also is that when you're dealing with human life and humans, there's always a complexity there. And I, I made a joke about it a minute ago. They pleaded insanity. You have to be insane to kill someone. But like, what role? And I think since the 60s, you've really seen this in America, how we've kind of been looking at the person in its totality. Let's look at how, his environment he grew up in. Let's look at how that environment impacted them, how it impacted you know, the way in which they then approached the world. And sometimes that leads to like a, a, a sort of a recognition of, oh, wait, maybe we can have a little mercy. On the other hand, it can lead to a misplaced mercy of, you know, they still they, they, they did a terrible thing. And there's, you know, you, the vi- the victim's family are kind of sitting there. And again, I don't know if this is a, 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 it's a human emotion. I don't know if it's necessarily a healthy emotion. And they're kind of feeling like we want this person punished. Why do we deserve to lose a loved one and this person can walk scot-free or can live out their life? It's a terrible, horrible feeling. So there's so many, there's so many emotions and factors at play. Yes, Imbar. So I was also going to emphasize about we said that based in it kills once every seven years of killing based in but what it sounds like is similar to the whole question even in the u.s law is is it a deterrent or not so, let, 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 so, uh, so let's let's get there okay so this is so that that being again a, a very 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 long introduction or as i would say by way of introduction all that being said what we now have to figure out is as follows we've determined that the torah definitely has space or a place for the death penalty We've also shown that, that the Mishnah is already telling us, but like, it's not happening very often. In fact, we kind of label a Bezdin that does it too often to be a problematic Bezdin, a, problem, a Bezdin being a rabbinical court, a problematic rabbinical court. That being said, I think what we have to ask are three questions. There are three scenarios where this idea of capital punishment takes place. In the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin being the primary courts in the days of the Talmud when we had, a, we had an autonomous state, the Sanhedrin was, and the Sanhedrin Agadu, which was the, the great Sanhedrin, was effectively the Supreme Court. So it, was, it, also, it, wasn't only, it wasn't every court in every city that could determine a death penalty. It had to be a, a greater court, or the Supreme Court. So in the Supreme Court, that's one area. That's probably what the Torah is talking about. That's number one. Number two is, even within the judicial system, which has the appropriate checks and balances and has the method, the, the, as we said, the witnesses have to come and it has to be, there's testimony, all that. 
There's also a concept called Makin Ve'onshin Shalokidin, which means that Bezdin, the rabbinical court, the greater rabbinical court, or perhaps this is really an executive power coming from the leadership, the monarchy, they're able to, uh, to adjudicate, to serve out and mete out punishment, even though it's not necessarily the strict letter of the law. That they can say, because society needs something, even though the person wasn't necessarily liable, or he, there's some way they found that they, they, they got off the hook, they, we happens all the time, people walk free because of some technicality, well, we're going to call the guy back into Besdin and punish him. Now, this sounds like it's uh, almost you know, the, the Wild West, but this is codified. This is being done within the stru- structure of the monarchy in Besdin, and actually it's something that we use until today. And I'll give you a very, an, an example of somewhere where we find this. According to Jewish law, who can be a witness? A male, a male but more importantly, a, an, an adult. Over 13. Okay. 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 So, someone over th- a guddle, someone over 13. A, a minor cannot testify. All right. We start finding chuvas in the last couple hundred years. You have a sexual predator in town. And most often they're preying on minors. Well, we can't accept the testimony of the minors, which means, according to the strict letter of the law, if a minor says this person did such and such, we could say, I'm sorry, you're a minor, we don't believe you. What you start finding is, suddenly there's an explosion of literature of, well, actually, well, actually, not so fast. Maybe there's a strict letter of the law when it comes to the laws of testimony. However, not only is the rabbinical courts invested with the, uh, the, um, the power, of, not only the rabbinical courts, don't, not, 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 their job is not only to adjudicate the strict letter of the law, but they're also invested with this extrajudicial power of looking at the whole picture and saying, maybe technically this would not fall under the tradi- traditional law, uh, minor testif- testif- testifying. However, in this case, because it's the only way we can get testimony, we are willing to not only listen, but then mete out punishment based off what the minor is saying. So this concept of makav on shlokadin plays a very, very important role in Bezdin. Because what it's saying is, and we see it, sometimes you can, tech, you, can, you can walk in a technicality and we're saying, what would society look like if everyone was able to walk in a technicality? And that's just one example we start finding. Again, you know, one can make an argument, and I think it's a very cogent argument, that you know, abuse is, not all, is equal and maybe even surpasses murder sometimes. It destroys people. It really destroys people. There was, um, this is totally off topic. I should probably turn the recording off, but I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw last week, there was, um, there was a court case in New York. New York and, um, well, it was supposed to be on, the sentencing, I believe, it was supposed to be on Tishba for a, uh, a convicted um, molester. And he said to the judge, well, we have a concept in Judaism called when the month of Av comes, it's, not, it's inauspicious. And therefore, I don't want the uh, bad luck of the month of Av, when the temple is destroyed, to affect your judgment. So can you please move the date till after Tisha B'Av? And the judge said to him, like, I have lots of Jewish friends. I never heard of this. And I think our response is, you know what? You deserve to have an inauspicious uh, sentencing. <laughs> okay, either way, but that's, that's, that's number two. So number one is we have the, the strict legal system. And the question is, how does, the capital, uh, how does capital punishment and all that play out within the strict legal system? Number two is we have the, the extra legal system where Bezdin looks at the greater picture and says that we will 
kind of, even, there's no such thing as necessarily walking on a technicality. That we are willing to strengthen society and do what it takes to put up guardrails, even though maybe that wasn't considered a, a, ba- a bad thing, or maybe you can find a way out of it. And number three, which I think is most relevant to our topic, is we're all talking about what, what's the important topic we're talking about in what world? The Jewish world. Meaning we're talking about Jewish judges. How does all this play out in the secular world? How do we view capital punishment by American court? Or put it this way, as we'll see in a minute, what happens if the uh, Jewish governor or senator calls up the rabbi and says, no, so what does your religion say about capital punishment? In fact, in in 1980, Governor Hugh Carey of New York did indeed do this. He reached out to Moshe Feinstein, or Moses Feinstein on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, probably the preeminent and undisputed greatest halachic decisor of the last century, and said to him, Rabbi Feinstein, we are putting together a panel of rabbis and moralists and everyone else, politicians, trying to figure out what uh, the New York State's uh, position on the death penalty should be. I believe there is no death penalty in New York at this point. And he says, what do you think? Yes, Joshi. I mean, the the Gemara says when Natasha Harris asked the the Jewish basin, they, about, um, Bashi, they said you couldn't judge because we don't have like a set place. Do you think that still applies today? Like, so do you think that, that, that Jewish people couldn't like do this? So that's, you're, you're asking a different question. That is, we, now we live in America. And let's even assume in America we are, are, are Besden. We're given, meaning the Besden in America, the Besden of America, Bethden of America, the Jewish courts of America, they have the power of arbitration. Right. In Israel, they actually have real, they have, they have stronger powers because it's, again, the, the system there. Here we have power of arbitration, which means if Harry and I get into dispute and we go down to the, be- to the Besden to do a fight over, um, I don't know. No, uh, Harry has a, a little puppy and I want it. And I said, it's mine. He said, it's his. We have a fight over the little puppy that his, his dog had. Harry's like a great-great-grandfather at this point from his dogs. And we, and we go to the Besden of America. We're, we agree to, that they, they become the arbitrator and that, that's holding and binding in court, in the court of law. Because you've got the beard. I've got the, the beard. No, it's a, it's a, no, the the Bitcoin kind of court of America. Josh just spent the summer learning with Rebbe Willig, who's the Av uh, Besden, who's the, uh, the the head of the court, and he's the most honest person you'll ever meet. Not at all. But what you do find is they, that's the only power they have. If we go down there and they say, Harry, because you uh, fell asleep during the rabbi's sermon, you are liable to the death penalty, you can walk out the door. <laughs> Snitch, exactly. You can walk out. Why? Because they, 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 they all, all they are is they have the power of arbitration. But Josh, you're asking us, what if we had, they were invested, they said, America said, you know what, rabbis, do whatever you want. Could we arbitrate these things? Could we adjudicate these things? Is that your question? So that's a, that's a b- bigger question that, that we can ask, and that is, you know, it's a machlokas, there's a debate whether, where, or in how far is this, 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 uh, the jurisdiction of Bezdin extend? Is it only in Israel? Only in Israel when there's a base on Migdash, there's a temple? Is it throughout the Gullahs? We do find, by the way, that you know, in Europe, the Jewish courts had, until a certain point, had autonomy. As in the non-Jewish, the non-Jewish landowners, usually the Christian church said, you guys do what you do as long as you pay us taxes, you have autonomy. And that's how they kind of maintain traditional communities. There were, there's, there were ways of punishing and keeping people in check. And that's where the... Yeah. Years ago, I met the head of the Bethlehem of London, and he was giving a speech, and I got a chance to meet him. And he said that there were non-Jews coming to the Bethlehem of London because they found them to be extremely fair uh, across the board, 
and the results were fair on both sides and whatever, and they built that reputation. So they were like any other arbitrator. Correct, 100%. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But that's 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 I think that's a separate question. Which again, as I one second, as I said, Josh, this is a survey. I don't want to go down. It's, it's a rabbit hole. It's its own sheer. I don't want to go down there. What we're left at is, and I'll get you what one second. We're left at is we have we have we had the role of the Sanhedrin when it comes to capital punishment, which is the Jew, the Jewish court in the times of the Temple. We have the concept of the extrajudicial law, and then we have what. The B'nai Noah, which are non-Jews, how, you know, if we were to advise them, do they have the power? What exactly does that look like? Yes? No, no, I was just asking whether this was Rabbi Feinstein's letter. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. It is. Okay. Are, are we discussing whether it's halakhically legal or the means of, ex- of how you come to the judgment or the means of how you execute the judgment? Because those are like three totally different areas. I think all of them, all of them. All of them? All of them. So if we decide on the first one, which is whether it's halakhically permissible, regardless of how you execute it or how you come to the judgment. Correct. So it is halakhically permissible. Uh, well, I haven't decided anything yet. Okay. Okay. So what I want to do now is as follows. Let's, I want to tackle all three areas. Sanhedrin, if we have time, then a little bit of the, the middle category of when Sanhedrin can go above and beyond, and then the non-Jewish courts. Um, and obviously we're not going to have the time I wanted because that's just what happens. Okay. Okay. With regard to the death penalty specifically, how does that relate to the the concept of an eye for an eye? It does. Eye for an eye is is another way of saying that if I is is damages. If I dam if I were to damage someone, take out their eye. It doesn't relate to somebody who might have killed somebody. Therefore, you've got to die. No, the, the eye for an eye is just it's not it's not a literal statement. We don't take someone's eye out. What we do is we say you pay for it. It's it's just damages. It's too, and, we'll, and you actually will see in a second. Yeah, and we'll see in a second actually how that, that plays out. Because that's a misconception. Correct. 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 Although Zevi thinks it's true. If Shia takes his lollipop, he can take Shia's lollipop. You know, uh, street justice in the cat's home. Okay. So here is what's going to sound like a very theoretical discussion. I think this is a, you know, a good way to frame it. There is a three-way machlok is a three-way debate and those who come to Sunday morning, so Elliot and Joshi and sometimes uh, Inbar and Stan, we have been discussing the concept that as we know there are how many mitzvahs in the Torah? 613. That we know. It's the code for every show in the world. Don't tell that to us. Okay. 613 mitzvahs. And part of the fun of this, of this uh, idea of the 613 mitzvahs is you start finding that in the Middle Ages... Lots of the rabbis started categorizing and trying to figure out, well, what exactly are the 613? And you find a whole, a, a whole literature of books being produced where rabbis are saying, well, these are the 613 mitzvot, and they're listing all of them. Okay. The, there is obviously going to be some debate, because we're rabbis, we never agree with each other, that, about what exactly the mitzvot are. The Rambam says, when it comes to the mitzvah, and this comes to your point, the chayyab, there's a mitzvah to... to Someone who is liable for the death penalty, there's a mitzvah to give them the death penalty, assuming, again, you fulfill all the criteria, which we're going to get to, don't worry. The Ramah says it's, although there are lots of mitzvahs, or, you know, you're killing and kidnapping and whatever it may be, it's just one, but there's only one command to kill. How you do it, and there, again, we, there are four different methods brought down in the Talmud, it doesn't make a difference how you do it. Each one, again, there's different, each, they, they vary in severity, and that depending on which 
which uh, transgression you transgressed, you'll get a different death penalty. But the Rambam says it's, it's just one command. Don't, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm sure, the Ramban. Nachman, he said it's one command. And the, that comes from the verse, Ubi yikerbecha. You should re- remove the evil from, from your midst. The command you should remove the evil from your midst equals remove those who are e- evil from among your midst. How you do so? Technical details. Fine. Comes along Rambam, Maimonides, and he argues and says, no. There are four different methods of putting someone to death equals there are four different and separate unique commands to put someone to death. Meaning if someone transgresses an area where they're supposed to be hanged, so that's, that's one mitzvah. They transgress a different one where they're, where they're supposed to get a different punishment, then they get that punishment. Four different punishments equal four different mitzvahs. Again, bear with me. If you don't get this part, it's fine, but I think this is a good way of giving a conceptual framework. Bahag, the Baal Halachas Gedolos, or Moshe Mikutsi, we've mentioned before, he says no. Every time there's a mitzvah in the Torah, there's a command in the Torah that says, and one who transgresses it, and by the way, it's never for positive commands. If you don't shake lulav, or you don't eat matzah, you're not getting the death penalty. It's for negative. Anytime it says, and for this you shall be put to death, it's its own separate command. Interesting, right? Ramban Nachmanides says, remove the evil from your midst. How you do so? The technical details. One mitzvah. Okay. Rambam says, no, four separate mitzvahs for each of the different punishments. Bahag says, no, 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 no. Every time it says to put someone to death, it's its own separate mitzvah. Sounds like a technical discussion, but I think perhaps they're actually getting at a much deeper philosophical underpinning to a theory of punishment. What? Ouch, ouch, ouch. The theory of punishment, that's as follows. This is, again, I told you, this is a survey. There are th- various theories of punishment, meaning you could say from a moral perspective, what authorizes society or government or us, again, as a whole, to punish someone? We're, you know, in abstract, a punishment is an evil thing. To hit someone is evil. To hit someone uh, um, because they know, are hurting other people, less so. To put someone in jail, deprive them of their basic, most basic right of freedom, seems evil. But you say, no, this is a person who is a menace to society. It sounds less evil. So the question, and this is a, a debate, and the theory of punishment has been debated for hundreds of years. Even the, our great, the great, the great Avos, the great, our great forefathers, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, they all had this debate about the theory of punishment. And this is something that's still today, and I think it's changed in the last couple of years. And what exactly are we doing when we punish someone? I'll give you an analogy. Ellen, you were a teacher. A, a kid starts talking out in class, making a lot of noise, and you send them out of the room. Why are you sending them out of the room? So you hear a couple, of the, a couple of theories. Perhaps you're sending them out of the room because by talking in class, you're detracting from the atmosphere in the class and you're preventing your, the fellow students from learning. So what you're merely doing is removing the, the source, you call it the evil, from the midst. You're saying, I'm sorry, I don't, you're causing trouble. You don't want to learn. That's on you. But I can't have you in the class. And you send them out. That's one approach. It could be different. It could be there's an educative. There's a, there's a rehabilitative part of punishment. That you say to the kid, you want, part of being in school is not just that you learn one plus one equals two, but you also learn how to be a productive citizen in society, which means you learn how to sit quietly in wherever it may be. So I'm sending you out of class not just because, or maybe your fellow friends, they don't care. They, they find your laugh, your jokes to be funny. I'm sending you out so you learn a lesson to behave. A different theory of punishment. One is rehabilitative and one is more of just removing the raw from the midst. Where do you think American society is nowadays? I'm not really sure. 
We'll get to the third one in a second. I'm not really sure where we are nowadays. I think there were, I'll tell you, I, I once read an um, article talking about getting technical, and it was the moral argument. Sorry, it was, it was the argument that we all have a moral obligation, we as in society have, an, have a moral obligation to rehabilitate our fellow citizens. And therefore the argument went, this was a very old article, it's from the 1800s, I believe, the argument went that when we punish someone, we're not just punishing someone because, you know, we want them to get a little better, but because we have a moral obligation as fellow citizens to ensure that our, our co-religionists, our co-citizens, our co are, are good, upstanding people. Or maybe you can argue it's government's moral, obliga government's moral obligation to ensure that the citizens are good citizens. Right, it almost sounds like the argument that we have to, the government says we have an obligation based off the, uh, it's in the Bill of Rights, that every kid that goes to school to educate them, that they're basic citizens. Well, the government also has an, a, moral, a moral obligation to ensure that not only you're a good citizen, but you put your cart, your cart back in the shopping store and don't leave it in the, uh, in the uh, parking lot. Or that you do any other, you know, I don't know, don't take too many uh, snacks or, uh, you, you know, those the basic things. So there is an argument out there. I don't know if we're there anymore. My guess is most people don't feel so comfortable with this, this moral argument. And I, don't, I, don't want, I need a couple minutes here. But again, number one is theory of punishment is you guys have to remove the person who's punishing you. A menace to society, they have to be put away, locked away, killed, do whatever you can to ensure they're not harming anyone else. Number two is, number two is, you put the is you uh you, you punish the kid because or the society because you need to educate them or i think by extension you could say to educate those around them that you want to engage in this behavior there are consequences that just if your friend threw a paper airplane in class or a rubber band at the teacher he's not going to get away with it because if you let that him get away with it everyone else will and i think this should, maybe you could actually argue it's a third so this is a third one the third one's really going to be that we have to punish we punish to save the law itself Meaning, meaning that if you, if people, if the rule of law is always flouted, so the law becomes meaningless. And I think as we, this is really the discussion talk about things taking place nowadays. So much of the institutions in our lives are so fragile because they're only there because we, as a people, have agreed that they should be institutions in our life. And even you can you can in, in, inject. The, you know, arms and guns and guards and army but, and military, but ultimately they're, they're not going to be able to sustain the institutions of our life if we as a people don't agree that they should be important institutions in our life. And when the rule of law is flouted and people say, I don't care, enough times, so then you effectively erode the very foundation of the law and which can lead to the very foundations of society. So perhaps, and this can, you know, the deterrent can be in here as well, the reason you punish the kid is because you say, if I don't punish you, so what does law mean? What does class and management mean? What does discipline mean? Everyone's going to do what they, what they wish. People will kill each other. End of story. That being said, so again, three theories of punishment, either to remove the person punishing, make sure the menace is not there. Number two is to educate, to rehabilitate. And number three is for the law itself. Perhaps one can make an argument. This goes back to our technical discussion. For Nachmanides, he said, what's, there's only one mitzvah of capital punishment, and that is to remove the evil from our midst. And therefore, he, what he's saying is the point of punishing is just to remove he who is, uh, who is a menace, he who is uh, going to harm others. For the Rambam, give me, in, uh, give me five minutes, or 15, how's that? For the Rambam, the, um, for the Rambam it's, there's four different punishments. And as we noted, there's a hierarchy in the punishments. Some are, more, are, are harsher than others. They're coming not just to 
remove evil, but they're coming to rehabilitate. They're going to say rehabilitate. The person's dead. And the answer is we are Jews and we believe in the world to come. And part of achieving atonement for this person would be that they were killed in the prime of their life. And therefore, there are four different levels of punishment corresponding to the way we're going to rehabilitate them. And lastly, according to the Baha'i, that every single law has, every single law which requires a punishment, that punishment is its own mitzvah. What he's saying is it's not about rehabilitating and it's not about removing the evil. It's about ensuring that there's a certain severity and a certain uh, rule of law rules and people don't just take everything you know, willy-nilly. I don't really care about it, but actually there's going to be consequences. Again, I'm sure they all, one second, I'm sure they all overlap. It's just who's, it's just where are you going to put the emphasis? Yeah. Uh, the stoning. So that's that's that, 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 that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, Inbar. It has to do with the, uh, each facet has to do with a different facet of the um, the enforcement. Like you said, a Jew is not allowed to put to send another Jew to their death. But how can they send people? How can a government declare war? Because of that, Jews to their death. Okay, they're, they're enforcing a general structure. Okay, that, that again, that's take that's taking us too far beyond. But yeah, again, this is a very broad topic, and I'm not getting to where I want to get to. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to skip a little bit. Okay, comes along, so that's that's what we have here. That is in terms of in, in, the, in the world, the Jewish the Jewish world. What about in the um, in the in the, in the non Jewish world? Again, I'm just trying to figure out how to skip it because I'm obviously out of time. So let's just know, let's just read this letter from Ramosha together. I think that's a good place to go because he's actually going to discuss a lot of this. Ramosha Feinstein was asked by Governor Hugh Carey in 1980 about the death penalty. So first of all, it's interesting. He writes, this letter was written on Purim. So while everyone else is running around giving Mishalach Manos and the dancing, he writing a letter. He was, He writes with this nice honorific to the great and honorable, uh, precious leader of our state. Yarach Hashem Yisbarach Yamav Vishanas. If God should give him a long life, and he should give him a good uh, a good ruling, okay. Racious. So first of all, just in his humbleness, he goes, "I'm I'm, I'm totally I'm totally taken by the fact that you great person came to me and want to know my opinion. I'm just a little Jew, you know, f- all five foot one sitting in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Okay, he didn't say five foot one, which is very tall in my my opinion. Um, and then he says. And he says, you want to know, not just what I say, but, you know, because you want, you have an understanding and you, you realized that what I tell you is really the opinion of the Torah, which we got from Moses, which went down through the, through the generations, the Rambam, Maimonides, the Code of Jewish Law, etc. Fine. Let me tell you. The Torah, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, I'm, I was going to read it inside. I think it's interesting to go through word for line for line. But again, we, uh, as always, never have enough time. So he says... First of all, the Torah certainly sanctions de- the death penalty. However, But it's used very sparingly and only for certain sins, such as murder. Meaning, if a person pickpockets someone, we're not going to say, kill them. Maybe in Singapore they do that. I saw one of the countries down there, they, they were doing that. That we don't do. Murder, that's a totally different level. And he says kidnapping. He goes on and on about that. So that's number one. Just know that it's not for every sin. It's going to be for very particular sins. This is very interesting. He goes, the fact that we do this isn't just because, isn't because we hate the person, the sinner. It's not because we hate him. 
He says, Ella, this is part of, this is, this is what's good for them. L'kayim olam, it's good for the world. Um, sorry, I'm just going to be a little disjointed. I just want to make sure I can get the main points. He says, so, he's great. so number one, he says, it's, it's, we do this for very rare, and rare, very rare and extreme sins. And no, this isn't because we hate the sinner, but as much as because we need society to function. Number one, umitzad cheni. Mitzad cheni basically means, on the other hand, hadag al chashivuso shal kol nefesh. We have to recognize the importance of every soul. Meaning, as, as the Talmud tells us, every person's a world unto himself. That's why when a person passes away, we, we, we tear cree, we rip, we rip clothing, because it's as if this, it's a loss of a loss of a life is more than just you know a beating heart went out, but it's a loss of a world, and we have to recognize the importance of that. Number one is you need a rabbinical court, a real rabbinical court in your that was that not just any rabbinical court, but it has to be people who have training in this area. Very important. Have to have training in the area, uh, in, critical that they have training in the area. In fact, the Gemara records a case with Rav Shimon ben Shatach, one of the great early Tanaim, and someone else, I don't remember who it was, where the person made a mistake. He was a great judge, he made a mistake, and, and someone ended up getting killed, and it wasn't right. And Rav Shimon ben Shatach came to him and said, you're never allowed to sit, you know, you're never allowed to do a capital case again, unless you have me with you to ensure this doesn't happen. So again, there, it has to be done with a Sanhedrin, the rabbinical court, Shanis Bechoset, and who are the people who get put on this court? Ready for this? People who are great in the wisdom of the Torah, but also great in knowledge of all wisdom. Psychology, criminology, you have to be someone who's, who's well-rounded. People who have, who have tremendous fear of heaven and who hate money. Interesting. The Sone Mamon, they hate money. But all the emes, they love truth. And they love people. Again, any cruel judge can say things. We're talking about, this is a very, very difficult decision. And we, want, we don't want it to be an easy decision. Look, we want this to be difficult. We want to find the, the nicest, sweetest person. In fact, Israel executed, when the actual state was around, one person ever, and that was Eichmann. Who, who, who did it? My father met the guy. My father was in yeshiva with his son. It was a Timani Jew. I believe he's Timani, a Yemenite Jew. Israel looked for someone who would have no connection to the Holocaust. And the only Jew they could find who had no connection to the Holocaust was someone from Yemen. And then he was like learning in Kola. And he, he won the lottery. It was like a, he's like a, a nice old Yemenite Jew. They didn't want someone who would have hate in them. They wanted it to be done by someone who, oh, my Libriels. Shehem Bale Tova. Venefesh Fela, someone who's honorable, someone who's, who's humble. Um, who speaks nicely, who's calm, who's, who, who interacts nicely with others. Look, again, we're, ta- we're, looking for, we're, not, we're looking for the best of men. They shouldn't have any Ganai. They shouldn't have a bad name to them. They should have someone who's known to have an extra level of Rachmanus, of mercy. Again, because what are we trying to say? That we want to make sure if the person really deserves it, they actually deserve it. And these people are not tainted by, you know, whatever else may be. That they're, whatever it may be. Whether it's money, whether it's just because they are, they, their predilection is one of, uh, just an angry person. And listen to this. This is very interesting. Number one person we're not going to appoint, an elderly statesman. 
interesting. Now you think like the more the older you are, the more the more um, ad, uh, knowledgeable you are, the wiser you are. He goes, no. Because sometimes the older you get, you get a little bit, um, you lose a certain sensitivity, you lose a certain like uh, 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 patience for the younger people. He says, for little kids. Now, my grandparents are not like this. I think what, something that makes my grandparents so unique is we can go to their house and destroy their house. I'm like, oh, great. But I know people who once they get a little older, they, just, they, they don't have the same patience. And I once was in Century Village in Florida. And I heard one guy turn to another, and he quoted the, 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 he quoted the line, he goes, you know what, grandchildren is, the, the Pasuk we say, happy and joy when they come, and happy and joy when they leave. <laughs> What's the idea there? I think the idea there is that there is a certain, you, you know, you get it, a certain tolerance that people begin to lose and as they get a little older. And what he's saying is, therefore, we can't have that when, on the Besden. Also, someone who doesn't have children. What's the idea behind that? So I actually saw last night from Ravolbi. Ravolbi writes that he was the great Mashkiach in in Israel and I think Yushalayim came from Germany. He said that God created humankind or the trajectory of our lives for, to reach perfection. Because first you're young and you work on yourself, but like how much can you work on yourself? So you're kind of acquiring things, gaining skills, but then. We get married, and marriage forces us suddenly to become a little more humble, to make space for someone else. You think that was something he says? Wait till you have kids, and then you learn how to really refine yourself and have patience. And he said, as you go through life, you, just life itself helps you, if you look at it and you approach it correctly, refine yourself to ultimately, to ultimately get to a place of perfection. So if you don't have children, you might be missing katsas rachmanas, a little bit of uh, rachmanas, a little bit of uh, the mercy. Because Allah over him, you might get a little uh, too angry. And too upset at the, those who uh, who sinned. Again, sitting there at a, a trial and seeing the what someone does to someone else, and the graphic pictures, it can really evoke these emotions, which sometimes can cloud judgment. No, we say Rahmanas, Rahmanas, Rahmanas. Mercy. Why someone who gets morally outraged when you see evil? I mean, I think that's a good thing. So, so I think I, I, you're 100% right and I think part of being a Rahman someone who's, who's, who's merciful as we said before someone who thinks everyone is good that's not Rahman there's something wrong there right? if you look at a terrorist like oh don't worry like you know he's still a human being he had a bad you, you have a bad child exactly you, so that, 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 that's not right now I don't want to use an extreme example but somebody <laughs> imagine somebody goes I love all humans even Hitler must have had something good about them we all immediately recoil and cringe like no no there, and that's just an extreme example, but there is, I think, Rachmanus doesn't mean you look at everyone and say, oh, what a, what a shine upon him, what a, what a bubble. It's that you're able to look at the world and still see within people, you know, a good when they do bad, but also recognize that sometimes seeing the bad they do. As we said, if you, if you say, oh, you're such a bubble, I know you have, your, you have an axe in your hand and you're willing to go back out and murder, but you know your grandma hit you once and you, and you, and you failed the test and whatever it may be, like, that's not Rachmanus. That's the opposite of Rachmanus. That's Achzarius. That's cruelty. So I think that when he's saying Rachmanus, what he's saying is someone who, who's refined the ability to have correctly uh, appropriated, appropriate and uh, Rachmanus. What do you say? Makes the judgment. Who do you think who appoints someone to Sanhedrin? Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not. I don't know if I, I don't know if the Sanhedrin appoints Sanhedrin like Israel. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, but who? But who decides who goes on? I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, we're running out of time, and um, I, I don't like this at all. Kids are. 
in summary, what he Ramosha basically says is at the end he goes that He basically says as follows. Um that we, we wanna avoid we wanna avoid it creating a, a we, we 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 create a system where someone who does kill has the appropriate and requisite bezdin and at people who are looking at the case. We want to ensure there's a society where it functions and people aren't just wantonly killing each other and you know, blaming again their grandmothers. But at the same time, so it, we kind of we left off where for those who are like the most uh, incorrigible people, there is a place for the death penalty, but use it very sparingly. And again, I, I just want to read this, this from this, this piece from the Knesset because again, I think it's just so important. See this. That's, that was Ramosha Feinstein. In the Knesset, there was a big debate. There was a... Um, there was a this is actually from the minutes of the Knesset in, 19, in the 1950s. I found the following. This is fr- from a, he was actually a rabbi. Now from, his name is, his name is, um, blah, 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 Zalman, no, Peretz, Peretz, I'm forgetting his last name. Um, Rabbi Shai Shechler pointed this out to me, so I, I went and looked it up. He gave a spe- an impassioned speech on the floors of the Knesset in 1950. Now, if anyone has to go, they can go. And this was, again, the whole, de- the whole debate about the death penalty was raging. He says as follows. And imagine, by the way, someone getting up in Congress and saying this. We say in the Torah. Imagine someone getting up and saying this. That man was created in the likeness of God. And therefore, And therefore, if man was created in the likeness of God, in the image of God, it's only a command from God that can take away someone's life. You want, you want to have justification for why the Torah in some limited scenarios. And by the way, again, I didn't get, I didn't get to it because of the time, but the scenario, I'm just going to say really quickly, you need to have witnesses. The witnesses have to, can't be related to each other, have to be adult men, and they have to um, have given warning to the person. The person has to accept the warning, which how likely is that? Like, yeah, okay, I hear it, and still to go ahead, and it has to be done within 10 seconds. Put that all together, they then go to Besden. In Besden itself, so it's a little, the system and the setup is a little different than our system. We have a prosecutor who works for the government, the judge is kind of just viewing the proceedings, make sure, make sure it goes, and there's a hired defense. And then there's a jury who kind of makes the decision. In the rabbinical court, they aid them, that the witnesses are more of the prosecutors, because they're saying we saw such and such. The role of the judge, therefore, when we say judge, it's a judge of, in these cases, it's a judge, of, I think it's 23. It's here 23 and something 72. So they're basically playing the role of the witness, of, of the jury, and the defense, and then ultimately the judge. So they have to ask questions, something about the most arcane details to try to throw them off. They take walks with them to try to throw them off. They split the two witnesses up to make sure their, their stories corroborate one with another. They can't even give, they can't, it can't, there's no such thing as an open shot case. They have to wait a day. I assume it didn't wait a day before they give testimony. So there's all these many, many, again, how likely is that someone's going to, two witnesses will see it, give the guy warning, and he's like, ah, I don't mind. I don't mind. What, by the part of that is, Salvagic says, is because we're not just trying to, you know, eliminate the, those who murder, but also those who undermine the system by saying, I know I'm murdering, I know it's a problem, and I don't care. I'm still going to do it in front of you too. Um, so um, this, 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 this Peretz, again, I forget his last name, he goes on to say, Hachukim shalonum enom tzivoy Hashem. Something people should remember more often. The laws of the state of Israel are not the laws of God. These are man-made laws. And therefore, they have their limits. And their limits are definitely going to stop at 
capital punishment. By the way, just put, point it out, if part of the idea behind capital punishment is <laughs> to remove evil from amongst our midst, well, now that you have the ability to put, place someone in jail, solitary confinement for the eternity, so you can argue that well, it has the same effect. Well, the counter-argument is that, you know, there's an, there's an appeal process, and then there's, there's and there's, uh, well, you have to find technicalities, and then there's, you know, leniency, and then there's uh, clemency, and, and it's, it's not the same. So, Again, I'm not getting into that debate. But he goes on as follows. We do not have, and this is a debate, again, I was reading the minutes, I read Ben-Gurion sitting right there, first Prime Minister of Israel, he goes, we do not have the ability to remove life from man. That is a present from God. Fine, that's number one. Man is created in God's image, only God can give life to man. Man does not have the ability to remove life from another man. Uh, especially our laws, which are not God made laws. And he goes as follows My final argument, the most important, fundamental, the essence of what I want to say is as follows If we eliminate the death penalty, according to me, I think, what are we really going to do? We're going to show the importance of life for man. Meaning to say that by eliminating the death penalty, we're going to really highlight how important life is. If you think about when he's this is 1950, in our times, when this has, you know, between the 1940s and the late 40s, in the late 40s and the early 50s in Israel, this is something that we've lost. The idea that human life has sanctity, and more than that, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's so much sanctity to the to, to life itself, that's been lost. Even in our land here in Israel, we have lost this, almost this, this sanctity to life. Because if you look back in history, and Moshe Feinstein makes a very similar observation, we don't find in the history books that homicide was rampant among the Jewish people in Europe. Just, it wasn't something that was happening. It might have been happening elsewhere. It was not happening. So, He says, interesting. He goes, maybe we should do is have a scientific inquiry, have some sort of study. Why was it that the Jewish people never had high rates of homicide? Right, the poorest city in Israel, B'nai Brak, the lowest, lowest level of crime. Although maybe it's just not, it's underreported. You got to say, and I think this is maybe the core of it, I'll tell you why. Because ultimately it's not a law that's going to prevent man from killing one another. It's not riches, it's not education in the sense of someone has the, uh, has the ability to make money. The, what prevents man from killing in, in one another, prevents people from uh, engaging in, crim- in crime, is morals. Education in the sense of teaching people values and ethics. You can have someone from the poorest places where apparently, again, the studies are all a little bit there and there. You come from a poor place, that's where there's be higher rates of crime, but it's a poor place where there's high, uh, they place a high value on values and ethics and morals, Crime very very low. You can go to a, a fancy wealthy community where everyone went to the top colleges, and universities, and the top jobs, and we know what you find. It's not about education. It's not about the uh, money you have. It's about ethics. And he says that we, the Jewish people, have always placed such a primacy on the importance of human life, and that's why you find because of that ethic built into us when we're so little, you start finding that that's not something that you don't find these high, rate, high rates of poverty of, of, of a homicide. We, never, we can't just take life 
you know, calls it Kalos, like, you know, willy-nilly, which is interesting because we're talking about someone going through the, judicial, the court system. He goes, Tafkidah shel Madinat Yisrael. The Tafkid, the purpose of the state of Israel, is to, to strengthen and to give um, yakar is like almost, it's a good word for yakar, to, um, to give um, importance to the, the, the life of a Jew. So a person walking on the soil of the Jewish state feels their life is holy. That living is holy. Um, and then he goes on again. This again. This is, this is taking place. I read the last line because it's taking place on the, on the Knesset floor. I think it's interesting. Getting rid of the death penalty. This is the way in which we can t- teach and educate about the importance of human life. The nation who received from on high, as in God told us, and gave to us and us as the proxies to everyone else, the Ten Commandments. It says. Thou shalt not kill. Our, our living nation, our nation which has, has, uh, has erected and brought up this new, this new state. It's on us to bring out to the world the importance of not killing. It's a, So again, I think part of that it plays into it, the um, how to punish, and we have alternative ways of punishing nowadays. Again, I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds of the. I think a lot of the, the politics always muddies and muddles and kind of takes away all nuance and really the discussion because so often it's less about what's doing what's right and more about doing what wins me votes or. You know, so I don't want to get into that, but I think just to kind of put this all together, what we're finding is as follows. The Torah certainly says many times the idea of capital punishment, that we're part of a system, the system is given us by God, and part, sometimes capital punishment is important, and it's part of that system. That being said, it's very, very exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare because, again, even in the event that you transgress and you have to have the witnesses that see and they have to the witnesses that give give, give the testimony they don't have fault <laughs> the idea is one is i think it, it highlights sometimes how important certain things are to god meaning what's wrong with you know killing the, you know answer is well if god says you get killed for killing that teaches you the importance of killing i mean that was a bad example but you can take other things what's wrong with doing uh, uh, engaging in idolatry so i'm ba- bowing down to a uh, rock well, the Torah says you should get killed if you do so, even if we know it's not going to actually happen. Because you said Bezdin that kills once in 70 years is a killing Bezdin. But what we do is we're trying to show you like the reason that that's the punishment there. It, it highlights and it sensitizes us to the way God views, you know, what we would think is just bowing down to a rock. That's number one. Number two is even though it's exceedingly rare and there is a place for it, when it comes to secular, non-Jewish courts, what's the, uh, what's the law there? So we kind of skipped over. I'm sorry, I got very, had to do, just do it you know, briefly. But Moshe Feinstein kind of said, made a very similar point. He said, look, it's not for, he said to the governor, it's not for everything. And it's in very rare cases. And it has to be someone who, it has to be done with no real, a real sense of this is what's right. You can't make mistakes. But then that being said, there are times, as we said, where maybe the only way is a, as a deterrent or to get rid of someone who's really evil because you know, jail is not going to do so. 
that we may indeed have to do so. And uh, yes, I think that's kind of where it is. How does it relate to Pittsburgh? I don't know. Again, I said if you came here for a conclusion, I'm not going to give you one. But I kind of want to do a quick survey of just various positions. I hope this was helpful. Yeah. 